1464, an artist by the name of Augustino de Ducci began working on a sculpture. And the project that he began, the idea was to create this enormous sculpture, this enormous statue that was going to be placed in the Cathedral of Florence. He began working, and after about 11 years, and another artist who worked on the project as well, two projects and 11 years later, the project was finally abandoned. The reason they gave for giving up was that the piece of marble, the stone that they were working with, had too many what was called taroli, or imperfections, too many flaws. There were too many cracks, too many errors, too many flaws with this piece of stone that it couldn't be done. Nothing good could come from it. In fact, they weren't sure that anything stable or long-standing could come from that. And so this huge, unfinished piece of stone, this flawed stone, was cast aside in an open courtyard where it laid for about three decades until a 26-year-old sculptor began working on it. And the name of that sculptor was Michelangelo. And for the next three years, Michelangelo worked day and night, night and day. His biographers say that he barely ate. He barely slept. And when he did sleep, he would fall asleep so exhausted from his day's work, he would sleep in his clothes down to his boots still being on. But he worked. He worked during the day and he worked at night. He worked during the sun and during the rain. In fact, he worked in an open courtyard so that when the rain fell, he was soaked to the bone and still kept on working. He carved and hammered and chipped and chiseled and worked tirelessly and ceaselessly until at last, in January of 1504, Michelangelo presented a 14-foot statue of David. Now, initially, when the project was completed, the plan was to hoist the statue to the top of the cathedral. But when everyone saw how magnificent this sculpture was, how flawless, how breathtaking, how carefully attentive to the details, down to veins in, Mike, in David's right hand that he had carefully crafted and sculpted, nobody thought that you could put it up top anymore. It would be a waste to put something so magnificent so far up. In fact, it needed to be put on the ground so that everyone could marvel at every single detail of this magnificent sculpture and statue. Now, if you think about that for a second, it, it's quite something, isn't it? That the same stone that was discarded as too flawed, too messed up, too full of tarolis, too defective for anything to, good out, to come out of it, for anything long-standing to, to be built from it, is the same stone from which the most famous sculpture in human history has ever been carved. So much so that 500 years later, what thought wouldn't be a stable standing structure still stands as magnificent as it is. What was, to one person, a chunk of useless stone was, for Michelangelo, the David. What one person saw as a discarded, useless stone, Michelangelo saw in it the David. In fact, it's quoted to him that at one point he said, every block of stone has a statue inside, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Almost as if every block of stone that came into Michelangelo's path, he saw within it some kind of potential of what it could be. 
as if there was something within that was trapped in and it was his job to get it out. What Michelangelo saw in every block of stone is what I think the Apostle Paul saw in every person. Right? What Michelangelo saw in every block of stone is what I think the Apostle Paul saw in every person. That when Paul met a person, and it didn't matter what kind of person, a religious person or an irreligious person, a spiritual person or a, a non-spiritual person, a spiritually open person or a spiritually closed person, a moral person or an immoral person, a liberal person or a conservative person, a person who kept all the rules or broke all the rules, a person whose life was put together or a life was total mess. It didn't matter what kind of person. In fact, even the people that you and I would be tempted to cast to the side for three decades imagining nothing good could come out of it, it didn't matter what kind of person. For Paul, when he saw a person, he saw what this person could become. It's almost like he had vision through the tarolis and through the defects and through the cracks and the crevices and saw a vision of what this person could become. He, he saw this person as holy, as blameless, as above reproach, he, he saw this chunk of stone being turned into this magnificent specimen. He could see, in his own words, this person becoming mature in Christ. That's the phrase he uses. And that vision of seeing this flawed chunk of stone turned into this magnificent specimen, seeing this person become this holy, blameless, above reproach, mature in Christ person, is what drove Paul to work tirelessly in ministry. It's what drove Paul to work night and day, and day and night. It's what caused him to work sometimes without food and sometimes without sleep, working tirelessly and ceaselessly in ministry. It's that vision that was ingrained in his brain that kept him in ministry. And what I want you to hear is that the aim of gospel ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ by proclaiming Jesus with God's power. Don't miss that. I want you to hear it again. The aim of gospel ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ by proclaiming Jesus with God's power. That's what you're going to see in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. So if you've got a Bible or if you don't have one, there's one by your seat. Grab that, turn to Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and you'll hear that last week we heard him speak in 24 to 27 as he talked about his ministry. And in verses 28 and 29, he picks right up where we left off, and he continues to talk about his ministry. And here's what he says in verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? Don't, don't miss that. Here's, hear it again. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, right in those two short verses, you're going to get the sort of what and why and how of Paul's ministry. 
Right? You're going to get the what is Paul's ministry? And why does Paul do this ministry? And how does Paul do this ministry? Right? And, and I want to commend to you, it's going to be the same for you. This is the what and the why and the how of your ministry. Of why you would do ministry and how you're going to do ministry and what you're going to do in ministry. And what I want to start with is the why. The, the what's compelling Paul. What's the vision? What's the goal? What's the end zone that Paul has in view that drives his ministry? Well, he tells us in the second part of 28. It's to present everyone mature in Christ. Right? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. That's what's driving him. That's the goal. That's the why. That's the vision that Paul has in mind that has him working tirelessly in ministry. It's to present everyone mature. Mature. That word in the Bible that would have meant complete or lacking nothing or perfect or whole. It's sort of like when we talk about our own progress, our own development, we sort of describe ourselves as, as sort of a work in progress, right? None of us have arrived. Well, mature is the idea of you've arrived, right? The, the day you're all hoping for, when, when there's nothing left to work on you because you're finally there. There's, there's no more sin, no more flaw, no more blemish, no more defect, no more character mistakes. You're arrived. You, you're there. You're mature, You're holy and blameless and above reproach, mature. Well, the vision that's driving Paul is that one day he's going to stand before God and present people before the Lord. You think of that. Here's the vision. That on the last day, and none of us will be mature until we get to the last day. We're going to be a work in progress till our last breath. But when that last breath is done, you are in Christ. are going to stand before God. And here's the vision that drives Paul's ministry. That one day I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to present people to him. I'm going to present the people that he entrusted to me. I'm going to present the blocks of stone that came by my way. And I'm going to present them to the Lord. I'm going to say, here Lord, here are the people you entrusted to me. Here Lord, working with my teammates, are the people you entrusted to us. Right? And, and here they are. And Paul's going to say, here Lord, are the Jews you sent my way. And the Gentiles you sent my way. Right, So here, Lord, is the self-righteous religious guy who, who dotted every I and crossed every T. He was so good. In fact, he was such a good person, he thought God was lucky to have him. Right, So good, so flawless. In fact, he thought he was a perfect specimen, didn't know why he needed God. He was so proud. His pride was visible to everyone but himself. But here he is now, Lord. And here, Lord, is the irreligious woman. The one who was a total mess, whose, whose background was a mess, and whose life was a mess, and whose story was a mess. And she didn't think she was too good for God. She thought she was too bad for God. In fact, nothing about her story thought that God would want anything to do with her. But here she is too, Lord. Here they are, and here's what Paul's going to say. I'm presenting them to you now, mature in Christ. Here's everyone you entrusted to me, Lord. And, and when you gave them to me, this guy was a total blockhead. And, and this girl was a total mess. But here they are. I'm presenting them to you. They were full of Tiroli, full of defects, to, full of mess and mistake. But I'm presenting them to you now. Mature in Christ. That's the vision that Paul has. That one day he's going to stand before the Lord. And he's going to present to the Lord that the Lord had entrusted to him some people. And he's going to say to the Lord, when you gave them to me, they were a, a caterpillar. Just an ugly, little, creepy, crawly, hungry caterpillar. But I'm presenting them back to you as a breathtaking butterfly. 
That's what happened in the course of our ministry to this person. We are presenting this person back to you as, as blameless, as above reproach, as mature in Christ. <clears throat> and so my road, what I think is quite amazing for us to catch is that Paul's work in ministry had as its goal the same end that God's work and ministry has. Now, I, I want you to see that. Paul's work and God's work have the same goal. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 1, verse 21, and here's what he says. He's looking at the Colossians, and here's what he says in verse 21. If you've got a Bible, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, and you, talking to the Colossians, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, that's basically saying you were full of tarolis. You had lots of defects, right? You were alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds. You were this stone that should have been thrown away and discarded. You were that way, but now he has reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to do what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, Jesus suffered in death, and I suffered in life towards the same goal, which is to present a bunch of people on the last day holy and blameless and above reproach. He's saying... The reason Jesus died and the reason in which I live is the same. It's to take a bunch of people who are full of defects, who are alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds, and to present them to the Lord on the last day, holy and blameless and above reproach. That what Christ was getting at in dying and what I'm trying to do in living is towards the same end. It's towards taking these blocks of stone and seeing them transformed, every single one of them into David's, and presenting them before the Lord in the last day. Isn't that a marvelous thought? If you would let it in for a second, said Marod, that means you are genuinely co-laboring with God. You're literally a co-laborer, a partner in God's ministry. God has called you into the ministry so that you could partner with Him to give yourself for the same thing Jesus gave himself, which is to present people on the last day holy and blameless and above reproach, mature in Christ. Can you see that, dear brother or dear sister? Can you, can you let your mind do some holy imagination for a moment? Just some holy daydreaming for a second. Would you right now just let your mind do some holy daydreaming? And can you see that, dear soul care member or soul care leader? And you see that man or woman that's in your smaller group and they're struggling with the same exact thing week in and week out and you have no idea how you're going to break through or get anything done or make any progress. Nothing seems to be connecting. Could you see the vision of that person standing on the last day holy and blameless and above reproach and mature in Christ? Could you see that GCM leader? Right? You're... You're busting your tail. You're, you're attending meetings no one even knows you're going to. You're working on prepping studies and crafting the right questions. And you're reading and you're, you're trying to get people to come and they don't want to come. And you're trying to get them to do this mission and get excited about it and be together. You're working your tail off. No one even sees it. And you're wondering, is there any point to all this labor and effort? But could you see today this people standing on the last day and saying to the Lord, Here, here are the people you entrusted to me. They were, they were caterpillars when you gave them to me. They were blocks of stone with lots of tarolis, but I'm presenting them to you now, 
mature in Christ. Could you, could you daydream that way, dear mom or frustrated dad? And you've got these sons and you've got these daughters entrusted to your care. And that boy is a total blockhead. And, and he's, a, he's a head of stone. And, and she's a mess. And, and you're wondering and you're constantly struggling with guilt of wondering whether or not you're doing parenting right. And, and you're constantly weighed down about anything. Is any of this getting through? And can you see yourself standing in the last day before the Lord saying, here's the son you gave me. Here's the daughter you gave me. Oh, they were full of Tarolis, but I'm presenting them to you, Lord, on the last day, mature in Christ. Here's my boy. He's holy and blameless and above reproach. Here's my girl, and I'm presenting her to you, Lord, mature in Christ. Could you see that neighbor, coworker, friend, classmate, family member? Could you see it with that person that you are positive is just too far gone? Nothing good's going to come from them. There's no way Jesus is ever going to break into their life or anything with Jesus is going to happen from their life. And could you see what Paul saw? When Michelangelo saw every piece of stone, he saw something within it waiting to be brought out. And, and Paul saw within every person, could you see within your neighbor and your classmate and your coworker and your friend, the one who's a million miles away, who's probably a stone discarded in a courtyard for three decades? Could you see that person standing before the Lord and you presenting that person to the Lord on the last day, mature in Christ? The David is what kept Michelangelo going. Night and day, day and night, char carving and, and chipping and, and chiseling. That, that's the vision that kept him going. And people mature in Christ is the vision that kept Paul going as well. It's what drove his ministry. So then the question is, so what did Paul do in his ministry? Right? Michelangelo carved and chipped and chiseled. What did Paul do in the effort to present people mature in Christ? Well, he tells us in verse 28. He says, Here, here's the tools of my trade. Here, here's what I did in my labor to present people mature in Christ. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's the tools of my trade. Here's what I gave myself to. In order to present people mature in Christ, I gave myself to proclaiming him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Right? You, you think about this. A, a, a caterpillar. You've, you've studied enough science with me. A caterpillar doesn't just immediately become a butterfly, right? What has to happen is this thing has to get inside that chrysalis or be put in that cocoon. And in that cocoon, it's not just this dormant, inactive state. But rather, something's going on in there. And what's actually going on in there is that the old thing is being broken down. I mean, would you think of that? This old, ugly little caterpillar is being broken down cell by cell and remade into something new that's going to emerge from that cocoon. Well, your ministry, my ministry, our ministry is the cocoon in which God decides to put some people in. And in that cocoon, God is going to transform them into being mature in Christ. So what's going on in that cocoon? What happens? Well, he tells us three verbs of what happens. Proclaim, warning, teaching. That's what's going on inside the cocoon of our ministry by which God transforms people from caterpillars to butterflies, from alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds to mature in Christ. We proclaim Him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all <clears throat> wisdom. So consider these three verbs with me. 
We proclaim, he says. Proclaim that word that would have meant announcing or heralding or declaring or preaching. And, and what are we declaring? What are we announcing? What are we, what are we heralding? What are we preaching? We proclaim what? Him. We proclaim Him. He is what we announce. He's what we declare. He's what we proclaim. Here's what we preach. That means that Jesus is the sum and the substance and the center of our message. Don't miss that. Right? What do we proclaim? We proclaim Him. Jesus Christ, who He is, what He did, what He accomplished, is the sum and the center and the substance of our message. He is what we proclaim. In the cocoon of our ministry, we're proclaiming Him, Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, His accomplishments for us. I I want you to hear that. When we preach, there's all kinds of things we could preach. I could give you four ways on how to have a better marriage, three ways on how to communicate, two ways to improve your finances, and all those things would have its place. They'd all be helpful. They'd all be useful. All of us want better relationships. All of us want better finances. All of us want better lives. And I want you to hear, you could talk through all of those things. And yet, Paul's commitment is to say, when I proclaim, what I'm proclaiming is Him. I'm proclaiming Him. Because I'll tell you, if I, if I made at the center or the substance of our message and our ministry anything other than Him, that, that'd be like you complaining about the food while you're sitting on the Titanic. Right? Now, now I, I'm happy to give you better food, and better food would be better, but you're in much graver danger. And, and, and I'm happy to tell you about better food once you're on the lifeboat. But, but for now, what I need to communicate to you is your grave state, and that there is a rescuer for your state. Right? There's a place for a comedian, but I want you to hear me. My call week in and week out on Sundays is not to entertain you, nor to make you laugh, nor to inspire you or make you feel good, because a comedian would be of little use on the Titanic. At that point, what you need is a lifeguard. And, and my proclamation to you week in and week out, and the sum and the substance and the center of our ministry is to proclaim Him is to tell you, dear brother, dear sister, you are in grave danger apart from God's mercy and grace. That that because God made you in His own image and likeness and loved you and poured His grace upon you, you were supposed to live for Him, but you, with every fiber of your being, rebelled against Him. You cast Him to the side and lived for yourself. And in response to your horrible sin and treason, what God chose to do is send His own Son, Jesus Christ, And if you would, Jesus is the David come down from heaven. The perfect specimen, magnificent, flawless, with no defect. And yet what God chose to do is shatter him in a thousand pieces for you. Crush him to fine rubble for your sake. That the weight of your sin was put on him till he was crushed for you but that his sacrifice for you was so effective that God put him back together and raised this Jesus from the dead and resurrected him and gave him a glorious new body and life. And that this Jesus now ascends to heaven and for all who repent of their sins, of their tarolis, their defects, their flaws, that now Jesus promises to dwell in us by his Spirit. 
Right? This is what we heard last week. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery hidden for the ages. That Jesus will now dwell in you, and for all who dwell in you, He's the promise that just like He lives in you now, you will live with Him forever, because Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, you who are in Christ will be with Him for all time, and then you will be mature in Christ. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim Him and I want you to know that's the commitment, not just from the pulpit, but from everything we do. The sum and substance and center of all of our ministry is proclaiming Jesus. Not just from here, but in all the things we do. So, so for example, if you're in our smaller communities called GCM, or we call our even smaller communities soul care groups, where men meet together and women meet together, and they talk through their life and what's going on. You'll, you'll come to one of these nights and maybe one of you will go, you know, I'm just, I, I struggle with overworking. And some of you do. You just, you, you overwork. Now, we might be able to throw advice to you. We might say, dear brother, what you need to do is you need to leave your phone at work. Or you need to turn it off so that you're not taking in calls and taking in emails. You've you got to stop doing that. Or, or we might tell you, dear brother, what you've got to do is you've got to leave your laptop at work. Don't bring that stuff home with you. Or we, we might tell you, dear sister, you've got to block out a day a week or a day a month. And, and you've got to give yourself to just rest and being with your friends and family at that time. Don't give yourself to work. And all those wonderfully helpful pieces of advice would be just that, wonderful and helpful. But the sum the substance, the center of what we tell you is, dear brother, dear sister, at the heart of what's going on in your overworking is some disconnect between you and Jesus. We're not kidding. Everything we proclaim is Jesus, and our ministry is trying to find how the dots connect between every detail of your life and Jesus. And what we do in Soul Care is trying to connect the dots between what's going on in your life and Jesus. And so we might say to you, we might ask you questions about your work and get at what's underneath your overworking. And we might come in questions and conversation to discover at the heart of your overworking is you, you need to impress your boss. You need to gain the approval of your coworkers. You need that extra title at the end of that name or that promotion because then finally you'll feel like you're worth something. And then we begin to connect the dots and say, brother, your deeper problem is not leaving your Blackberry at home. Your deeper problem is a, a disconnect between you and Jesus and your faith in what he did. And I need to tell you the good news. I need to proclaim to you him. And I need to tell you Jesus Christ died to give you an identity. Jesus Christ died to work for an identity for you so you don't have to work anymore. His work gained you an identity. All you have to do is receive it. You don't have to try and achieve it through your own work. His work was sufficient so you don't have to work like that anymore. Or I might tell you, dear sister, it sounds like in your conversation, your overworking is connected to the fact that your security is found in your bank. You're banking on your bank, right? The number of zeros in your bank account is what gives you a sense of everything is right. And I need to help you see that your fundamental problem is not the date on your calendar or a Blackberry at work or home, that your disconnect is him. So I'm going to proclaim him to you. And I'm going to help you see, dear sister, I think what's underneath this is you don't believe that Jesus Christ died to gain your eternal security, how much less the security you think you find in some bank accounts. To, that if he died to provide you eternal security, you can rest in him that he'll provide for rent also. If he did not spare his priceless blood of his own son for you, will he prevent you from paying rent? 
And so I get to connect the dots for you of what your deeper heart problem is and proclaim to you Him. Do you see what I'm saying? We proclaim Him. He is the substance and the center and and the sum of our entire ministry and message. And so Paul says, here's what I'm doing in the cocoon of ministry. We proclaim Him. And, And how do we proclaim Him? How do we announce Him? How do we herald Jesus in every way? He gives two more verbs to show you how this is carried out. And those are the verbs warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That in the cocoon of ministry, we're proclaiming Jesus and we're doing that by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Warning. Let me run through these two words quickly. Warning is exactly what you think it means. Right? The word means what it sounds like it means. It's the idea that you're going to confront someone. It's the idea of confrontation. That someone is living out of step with Jesus, out of step with the gospel in sin, and you are going to lovingly confront them. You're going to correct them. You're going to invite them to Starbucks. You're going to sit them down, and you're going to talk to them. Right? It's the idea of bringing correction. Right? But, but I want you to pay attention to the two words that follow all that, which is with all wisdom. Right? With all wisdom. That is that if you enjoy that kind of thing, warning just people, you're just constantly looking for that, you, you need to hear very carefully with all wisdom. Right? Appropriately. Rightly. At, at, in a way that it's going to best be received, thoughtfully, with skill, with intelligence, with all wisdom, but nonetheless warning everyone, confronting, confrontation. And the truth is, none of us like doing that. None of you like doing that. If you've ever loved someone enough to go through the hard thing of actually warning someone, of confronting someone, of bringing to light their sin, you know how awful that feeling is. There's a pit in the bottom of your stomach. There's a lump in your throat. There's a tightness in your chest at just the thought that I'm going to have to sit down with this person and tell them this. Right? None of us enjoy doing that. And if you enjoy doing that, you have other problems we need to talk through. Right? None of us want to do that. We hate the thought of having to confront someone, warn someone. But in the cocoon of ministry, in order to see people mature in Christ, Paul says we proclaim Him and we warn everyone. None of us like warning anyone, and much less what we don't like more than that is being warned by someone. We don't want to warn everyone. What we definitely don't want is to be warned by anyone, right? None of us invite confrontation or correction into our life. I was listening to this preacher named Paul Tripp, and and he was saying, just think about how you respond when someone tries to correct you. Someone sits you down to bring correction into your life. How do you respond? Do you go, Thank you so much. My walk with God is indeed a community project. And I'm so thankful you're a part of that project. I see you right now as a tool of God's sanctification in my life. And invite you to come. In fact, don't go far because I'll mess up likely in 20 minutes. And you're going to need to come again. And I'm so thankful the Lord has sent you into my life. Paul Tripp says, no, none of us respond that way. Right? Instinctively, instead what happens is suddenly this inner lawyer comes out. Right? Suddenly we become these skillful attorneys and this inner lawyer, this incredible defense attorney shows up. And suddenly we begin to defend ourselves. And defend ourselves from what? From the very help that God sent into our path to transform us. From the very means in this cocoon by which God is doing the hard work of breaking down this caterpillar into this majestic butterfly. But I defend from the help God has sent my way. 
rather than seeing that every person who would love me enough to speak a hard and necessary word into my life is, as Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Rather than seeing God must love me so much and is so committed to my sanctification that he would send this hard word into my life, I defend myself. And then, after the inner attorney's done, then, then somehow this defense lawyer turns into a prosecuting lawyer. And, and then we go, not only do I want to defend myself, in fact, I see some things in you that I'd like to point out. You know, I'm committed to your sanctification, so I got some things to share with you, right? And, and the, the strangeness of it all is God is putting you in a cocoon of the ministry of his body, the church, because God is committed to transforming you. And that happens by warning. No caterpillar turns into a butterfly without the hard breaking down that happens in the cocoon. No David is shaped without the chipping and the hammering and the chiseling and the cutting of stone. And so no mature Christian comes without the hard and painful but necessary wounds of warning. Warning everyone. And then he goes on and says, and teaching everyone. Right? If, if warning is me speaking about what's wrong in your life, teaching is me telling you what's right. Right? Meaning truth. I'm communicating truth. I'm instructing you. We're warning everyone and we're teaching everyone. Now, here's the danger that I, I want to warn you against. My, my thought is that some of you would be tempted to tune out because right now it could feel like you're listening to someone else's job description. Right? Like I'm talking about you in ministry and it could very much feel like I hope the pastor's paying attention because this is really important stuff for him. Like you're reading someone else's job description. Like this is all important for Paul. He should do some proclaiming and warning and teaching. And, and this might be relevant to the pastor. He should do some proclaiming and warning and teaching. But I feel like I'm reading someone else's job description. I want you to see something. If you have a Bible, turn one page over to Colossians 3. In, in the next chapter, two chapters later, in Colossians 3, verse 16, and listen to what he says. And Paul is now not talking about him in the pew. He's talking about to the people in the pulpit. And this is what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then pay attention, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, what? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Does that sound familiar? In fact, in the original language, it's the exact same words that he uses in chapter 1 to describe his ministry that he uses in chapter 3 to describe your ministry. That, that chapter 1 may be talking about the guy in the pulpit, but chapter 3 is talking about the people in the pews, and he uses the same exact words to say, here's what you're to do. You are to teach and warn, or another translation here is admonish anyone, everyone, one another, with all wisdom. I mean, you think of that simple common saint at Seven Mile Road. The same words used to describe the apostles' ministry is the words that are your responsibility also. You, you, in this community project of ministry, in this cocoon of ministry, you are to proclaim him and teach and warn. And if you begin to take that seriously, here's what will begin to happen. You will not be satisfied anymore with an elementary understanding of Christianity. 
You won't be satisfied anymore that other people know a lot about the Bible. I just don't. And you're going to forever, in the next 20 years, you're still going to go, I don't know a lot about the Bible. You're not going to be satisfied with that anymore. You're not going to be okay being a spectator while someone else does the hard work of studying. You yourself will become a serious student of the Bible. You're going to become a serious student of theology because you have the responsibility of teaching someone. That, that's not just the apostle's job or the pastor's job. That's entrusted to every saint at Seven Mile Road. So maybe, maybe you sign up for Creed this summer as a way of saying, I need to get more knowledge. I need to understand more because I have been given the responsibility of teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul's saying here, God expects all the saints to be the cocoon in which people go from caterpillar to butterfly. And they do that by proclaiming him and warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And you'll likely have noticed, by the way, that word everyone keeps showing up. Warning everyone and teaching everyone so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Three times in the span of just a few words to say, listen, this is for everyone. This applies to everyone. That is that every block of stone that comes by your way, that's the one you've been entrusted to. Every caterpillar that crawls by, that's the one for you. Everyone. Right? That, that means that you don't just get to pick your ministry for some people. Everyone God has sent in your path is the ones that he has entrusted to you for a season. So, so that means the ministry of our church. We don't exist as a young people's church or an older people's church. We don't exist as a single person's church or a couple's church or a family church or a rich church or a poor church or this is a church for educated people or uneducated people. This is a church for spiritual people or non-spiritual people. Everyone. We proclaim him warning everyone and teaching Everyone, with all wisdom, that we might present everyone mature in Christ. That's our ministry. Now, if you take this seriously, you'll know none of this is easy. If you begin to understand, this means I've got to become a student of the Bible and study theology. I've got to understand this stuff because I've got to teach this stuff. I've got to schedule that appointment at Starbucks. I've got to schedule that appointment at that person's house. I've got to meet them. I've got to confront them. I've got to warn them. If you begin to take ministry seriously, you'll begin to realize none of this is easy. In fact, it's incredibly difficult. In fact, Paul doesn't hide how difficult it is. Do you notice what he says at the beginning of 29? He says, for this and what's the for this? The for this, that is the presenting everyone mature in Christ and proclaiming and warning and teaching everyone. For this, I toil, struggling. Do you hear the words he uses? Let me describe my ministry to you. I toil at this, struggling. In the original language, this word would have meant the idea of sort of exhaustion after a beating, after a physical beating, right? It, Paul's saying, let me tell you what ministry is like. It's like you're getting beat up. Like you've taken a beating. You're exhausted. The word struggling is the word from which we get agonizing. This is agonizing labor and toiling and striving and struggling and working for the sake of seeing people mature in Christ. And hear me, if you've ever done ministry, and by now you know that doesn't mean some kind of fancy professional thing. If you've done the proclaiming Jesus, warning, teaching, if you've ever loved someone enough to be the cocoon under which God is transforming them, then you could testify to how difficult ministry is. 
You can testify to how much suffering and laboring there is. You could testify to how much toil there is. Right? If you've ever loved someone enough to do the difficult work of ministry, then, then there's difficulty from within, there's difficulty from without. Right? You, you want to do ministry. You want to serve people. You want to teach and warn and proclaim Jesus in whatever ways that God has for you. Right away, you're faced from difficulty within. Because before I say a word to them, I have my own sin and my own struggles and my own weakness to deal with. I've got this constant inability within myself. Before I seek to see them mature in Christ, I'm a mess. We were in a meeting yesterday. Someone just prayed and he said, Lord, you could have chosen angels to do this work. You entrusted it to flawed people. Before I see this person mature in Christ, I've got my own junk within my own heart. Weakness of my body and weakness of my mind and weakness of my flesh and limitations and sins and all the struggles. And that's just within. And if I can get through that by God's grace and I begin to do ministry, now I'm faced from difficulty from without. I'm trying to do ministry, but what do I meet? Hostility and rejection and misunderstanding and ridicule and slander and accusation. Right? I'm, I'm trying to serve Jesus and present people mature in Christ. And what do I get? I get opposition of every kind. M- ministry's hard. If you've, if you've ever loved someone enough to minister to them, you know how hard it is. You know what it costs you in time. You have such limited time to begin with. You know what it costs you in energy. You know what it costs you in money. You know what it costs you in, in emotion as you get your life wrapped up in this life. Ministry is hard just from the sheer disappointment and frustration of how slow ministry is. You ever think through that? You know how frustratingly slow ministry is? I remember when Pastor Benu started working here. He had worked for eight years in the admissions department, graduate admissions at Cairn University. And then in his first year here, I remember towards the end of that, just first year, him sort of lamenting how hard it was to measure if you're doing right. If you're doing good. When you work in admissions, if you want to know if you're doing good, you you check the data. Did more students enroll? You're doing good. Did they not? You're not. There's data. There's measurables. There's You can quantify this. How do you measure if a GCM study was effective? How do you measure if that soul care did anything for that person? How do you measure if a sermon did anything? How do you measure? And and then the worst part is people are messy. They take three steps forward and two steps back, so I guess that's net one. And then they take two steps back and one step forward, so I guess that's progress. And there's fits and there's starts and there's backwards and there's forwards and there's great seasons of sprinting with Jesus and then backsliding from Jesus and then patience and all of that. And ministry is toiling and struggling. And if you didn't mention all of that, Not to mention there's an enemy who hates your soul with all his being. An enemy who is determined to end and trip up and disqualify your ministry. One who is constantly roaming about looking like a lion for someone to devour. An enemy who hates your soul. Who will constantly put one temptation after another in your path to disqualify you from ministry. Or if not, that will constantly chatter in your ear, accusing you of your unfitness for ministry. One who hates every fiber of your being. 
And so Paul says, for this, which is presenting people mature in Christ, I proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and for that man I toil, struggling, agonizing. With what? How can he do this? He says in verse 29, with all his energy, which works powerfully within me. The what of ministry is your proclaiming, your teaching, your warning. And the why of ministry is so that we might present people mature in Christ. How do we do ministry? Well, he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, let me tell you what is the power for my ministry. What keeps me in the game? What hasn't let me quit yet? What keeps my head down one step after another? Keep going. What does that for me? It's because God's energy is powerfully at work within me. I am at work toiling and struggling because all his energy that powerfully is at work within me. What Paul does is he heaps word after word to try and communicate this great power. This word energy is a word that wherever it's used in the Bible talks about supernatural energy. Divine energy. And this word power is in other passages related to Jesus' resurrection power. So the same power that took the dead body of Jesus and made it alive, the same energy that flows from divine God is the energy and power, Paul says, that is at work within me which enables me to toil and struggle in the work of ministry. I do ministry, Paul says, by God's power and not my own. The fuel for God's ministry in my life is God working in me. You need to hear that, Samarod. That means that you, apart from a conscious, consistent, and constant dependence on God, will soon find you're doing ministry running on fumes. You've neglected the fuel for ministry. You will find soon, without a conscious, consistent, constant dependence upon God's power, that you are somehow settling for what you can accomplish in the flesh, rather than what He intends to manifest by the power of His Spirit. You're running on fumes if you will not daily, constantly, ceaselessly be dependent upon His energy, His resurrection power. What Paul's saying is in a wonderful way that can't be measured or quantified. In my work for him, he is at work in me. And because he is at work in me, I can work for him. That's what he's saying. Samarod, your work for him is because he is at work in you. And because he is at work in you, you can do work for him. I toil and struggle with all his energy that powerfully works within me. It's not either God works or I work. It's that because God works, I work. Right? It's not either, listen, this is on me, so I better run as hard as I can and as fast as I can, leaning on my gifting and my talents and my background and my education and my personality and my wiring. I'm running on fumes, but I'm still going to do it because I have to do ministry. Nor is it, well, God and resurrection, Jesus' power is here so I can kick up my feet and he's going to do what he's going to do but rather because of his resurrection energy power in me, I toil and I struggle so that I can proclaim him and warn everyone and teach everyone so that I might present in the last day people mature in Christ. So my road, let me end. Here's what I want you to hear. The aim of gospel ministry, 
is to present everyone mature in Christ by proclaiming Jesus with God's power. The aim of gospel ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ by proclaiming Jesus with God's power. If you're here and you're not a Christian, like you've never listened for one minute, could you listen to me? You are on the Titanic. And I am proclaiming to you that God sent His own Son, not so that you could marginally believe this, but to the depth of your soul believe, that God sent His own Son who was perfect to drown in your sin and suffocate under God's wrath, bearing your wickedness for you. And I proclaim Him to you today that if you today will confess and acknowledge your defect, you can stop playing church and religion, you can stop running from this God today, you can throw your defect onto Him and He will throw His perfection onto you. Not through anything you do, but through repentance and faith. You give him your tarolis, he gets destroyed, and in response, he remakes you brand new, holy and blameless, mature in Christ. You can get serious about God today. I'm proclaiming him to you. And if you're here and you are a Christian, for one more minute, would you listen to me also? If you've heard this sermon, all I want to do in my last minute is provoke in you godly ambition. You're all ambitious people. Can I provoke in you for one moment godly ambition? And what I want you to do is resolve today that when you get to the last day and you're standing before Jesus, you're going to have some people to present. Don't let it be that you get to that last day and you've got nobody to present to him. Don't let it be that you get to that last day and you go, Jesus, I don't have anyone to present because I was really working on getting me really godly. I spent a lifetime trying to improve my quiet times and my own devotional life and look at what a David-like specimen I am. No, if I could provoke in you godly ambition, here's my, my challenge to you. When you get to that last day, you should have some people to present to the Lord. To say, Lord, here are the caterpillars that walk by my way and look at them. Here are the blocks of stone that you put in my path. And Lord, they were full of defects when I met them. This man that you gave me, this woman that you brought into my life, this relationship that I had, Lord, this person was so flawed, you'd think that the only thing you could do is chuck them in a yard for 30 years. But Lord, by your energy, and your resurrection power at work in me, I proclaim Jesus to them. And I warned them. And I taught them with all wisdom. And here they are, mature in Christ. Let's pray.